Are you satisfied with your Christian life? Sincere Christians are often anxious about Christian life. On the one hand, there is the anxiety about our failures. I'm not what I ought to be or what I want to be. I want to be more holy and godly in my life. I want to be involved in more ministry, serving more people, making more impact as a Christian evangelist in my workplaces and so on. My prayer life is not as fervent nor consistent as it ought to be. Uh, There is always this nagging sensation, nagging dissatisfaction at the status quo or lack of progress in your Christian life. In a related manner, sincere Christians are also often anxious about what might be missing in their Christian experience. You know, from, to, from time to time, you meet people coming back from this amazing Christian conference that had thousands of people or returning from overseas mission trip, speaking about the wonderful things that they've experienced and highs and the deep intimacy with God. The question can come to our mind, <clears throat> am I living as a complete Christian? Have I perhaps missed a secret to fuller Christian living? This kind of anxiety is honest and reasonable. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we've all experienced that. On our own, we are all weak. For most of us, Christian experience is very ordinary. Christian growth, very slow. Failures often and deeply frustrating and disappointing. Responding rightly to these anxieties in our Christian life will be important. It will do no good to simply ignore them. Ignorant Christian life is no answer for anxiety-driven Christian life. We must think carefully about the reasons for our anxiety. However, there are also wrong ways to deal with these anxieties. As the Apostle Paul warned us in last week's passage, uh, there are smooth talkers who are seeking to delude Christians with plausible arguments, chapter 2, verse 4, to shift you away from the hope of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 23. The Apostle Paul wants the Colossians, you and I, to live your best Christian life. That's why he's writing this letter not to hold anything back from you, not to simply have Christian life, fulfilling Christian life for himself, but he wants you and I to experience the best Christian life, growing, fulfilling, abounding. And according to chapter 2, verse 2, such life looks like this, uh, with reference to believers in themselves, strong in their heart, which is another way of saying what he said back in chapter 1, verse 23, stable and steadfast immovable. Uh, With reference to the fellow believers, brothers and sisters sitting next to you, knit together in love, union and harmony. With reference to Jesus Christ, reaching all the riches of full assurance of understanding in Jesus and discovering in him all the spiritual reality that can be ours on this side of glory. But there is a right way to get there and a wrong way to get there. And that is the subject of Apostle Paul's warning and teaching in today's passage. Let's pick it up from chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, 
In other words, in view of the hope of glory that is in Jesus Christ, the amazing thing that Paul has been speaking about thus far in chapter 1, on the one hand, and the temptations which threatens Christians to shift away from the hope of the gospel on the other hand, says the Apostle this is the way forward. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. To move forward, Paul takes the Colossians back to the beginning. You need to know how it all began and why you began if you are, going, if you are to go on and finish the race. And this is what happened when you became a Christian, Colossians. You received Christ Jesus the Lord. And why you became a Christian, you recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, and that Jesus is the Lord over all creation. Therefore, that's why you received and submitted yourself to Jesus as your Lord. Well, nothing has changed since. That's Paul's point. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is the risen Christ and enthroned Lord over all. There is no other Lord. There is no other Christ. The same Jesus whom you have heard in the word of truth and put your faith in it, chapter 1, verse 5, and understood the grace of God in it and put your hope in it, chapter 1, verse 6, is the Lord of everything. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or powers or any authorities. So don't look elsewhere for more spiritual life. Deeper relationship with God. More enlightened wisdom. Remain and walk with the same Christ whom you have received in the gospel. Here we see that the Christian life has a goal. Now, while receiving is the beginning, there remains a job to do, road to be traveled. There is a pilgrim's progress to be made. It is a purpose-driven life, which is to stand holy and blameless before the Father on the last day. For that, Christians must walk. Now, walking is a biblical imagery of living in a particular manner, pleasing to God, as we read in Psalm chapter 1. Paul elaborates what such life looks like in more detail when he gets to chapter 3. He mentions things like husbands loving your wife, wives submitting to your husband. It includes things like being kind to the person sitting next to you or in front of you, behind you. It includes things like getting rid of greed, sexual immorality, anger, obscene talk, in other words, the shape of Christian life, your best Christian life is this. In every situation, speak, think, desire, and behave with Jesus as your Christ and Lord. In every sphere of life, act, think, desire like Jesus is your Lord. In one sense, so simple to state. And it is so good to see when you see people doing it. So good to experience. But we all know it is a very big thing to do, isn't it? Certainly, it's not a kind of life you and I can live 
on our own power. It's not the kind of life you and I can fulfill away from Christ. It can only be lived in Christ. Hence, Christian life. Christ is the secret to best Christian life. So Paul adds in verse 7, rooted and built up in him, or more literally, built upon him. And we are like a plant whose life depends on its roots and foundation on Jesus Christ. You cut the root of a plant, it withers and dies away. I love how organic and alive the plant imagery is here about the Christian life. Christianity is more than accepting a collection of certain philosophies or religious ideas. It's not a philosophy we have received, but a person whose significance is so gigantic that I come to understand everything in life, from the way I talk, to the way I think, even to the way I desire, the way I view everything in the world, my very existence of life at this very hour, in my relation to Him, and my reconciliation to Him, my future destiny and security upon my relationship with Him. The way forward in Christian life is to abide in and walk with the same Christ whom you received as the Christ and as the Lord. Now the second part of verse 7 is very interesting. Did you notice the movement from in him to in the faith? Did you see that? Uh, uh, chapter 2 verse 6, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and now, there's a little bit of switch there in the proposition, established or strengthened, as NIV translates it, in the faith. The faith refers to the body of essential Christian truth, or what we might call doctrine. The faith of the gospel you are taught. Uh, so you see, uh, what we are seeing here is that Apostle Paul is bringing personal truth, what we might call personal relationship with Jesus, and propositional truth, what we might call the knowledge of God, or doctrine, or theology. Uh, sometimes you hear people say, Christian life is more than knowledge or doctrine. It's about love, personal relationship with God. It's true. But Christian life is no less than learning, teaching, acquiring, and growing in the knowledge of God. On the other hand, sometimes you meet people whose approach to Christian life is merely intellectual and analytical. Again, rigorous intellectual thinking is an important part of Christian life part of Christian discernment and growing in wisdom. However, Christian life is more than knowledge. It's growing in relationship with a person. It's a loving in a person, living in a person. Well, we would avoid such false dichotomy if we listen to the apostle here. There is no division between personal knowledge and propositional knowledge in Christian life, in him and in the faith. We can't continue in Christ without continuing in the faith, being taught the word of truth. Likewise, knowledge can be acquired in vain if it is not learnt and lived in Him. It doesn't matter if you're a theological student studying four years of full-time study there, if, if that knowledge is not transforming you to live in Him, rooted in Him. 
The knowledge and love of Christ go hand in hand in authentic Christian life. Paul wants Christians to be established, lay a deep and firm foundation by learning the knowledge of Christ so that they walk in Him and grow more like Him. Now finally, Paul has one of his favorite motifs of the letter as an indispensable companion in your walk, in your Christian walk. Abounding in thanksgiving. Now you'd have noticed that that there's a frequent call for thanksgiving in this letter. Many times it is repeated. And the frequent call for thanksgiving in this letter is not conventional. Paul is not simply trying to be polite or religious, as, as, as we do when we write you know, our Christmas cards to one another. The apostle knew that one of the chief causes of dwindling and soul-destroying, poisoning Christian life is ingratitude and dissatisfaction. Now, we've recently finished the book of Exodus, right? So you'll remember, we've seen this in history of Israel's life. Despite God's ongoing and persevering steadfast faithfulness to them, ingratitude continued to affect Israel. They keep turning away from God. And also, we experience that history of Israel in our own personal experience, don't we? Ingratitude often poisons our soul and mind constantly throughout our lives. Paul says the way to advance in Christian life is to accompany thanksgiving in our Christian walk. Now, I wonder whether some of you might be thinking in your head right now, well, it's easy for you to say, Hank, because you, you, you live a fairly comfortable and easy life. Of course it's easy to say abound in thanksgiving when you're living a fairly easy and blessed life and so on. Good health, good neighborhood, healthy children, and all that kind of a thing. It's true that I live a fairly easy and comfortable life, but let me make a confession to you. Despite my relatively comfortable life and lack of severe sufferings and hardships in my life, I find thanksgiving hard. Ingratitude and dissatisfaction affect my soul constantly. And I have a daily need to lift my eyes to what God has done for me in Christ and be thankful. What I want to say is this. Abounding in thanksgiving is a spiritual warfare for all of us. It is a spiritual warfare for me as it is for you. And for those of you who are in distress, I don't want to minimize your suffering, and I don't know, and I will not know how difficult, tiring, and sorrowful what you are going through is. But I know this, and I can guarantee you one thing, that if you are a Christian, no matter who you are and whatever circumstance of life God has put you in right now, you can be thankful. In Christ, you can be abounding in thankfulness. Well, if you are still not convinced, we'll see why a little bit more when we get to verses 9 to 15. So hang in there. Okay, don't leave me. Come back. Now, after exhorting the Colossians to advance in Christian life, Paul warns them in verse 8, you'll see a juxtaposition of warning and teaching throughout this letter. Just as Paul described his ministry back in chapter 1, verse 28 as warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. 
Uh, so here, he warns them three times in quick succession in this section. First in chapter 2, verse 8, then in chapter 2, verse 16 to 19, and again in chapter 2, verse 20 to 23. And in between these warnings, he gives his teaching as a remedy against the danger uh, in chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. We'll look at them in turn. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or an empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The dangers are real. The ultimate tragedy of throwing away Christian life is real. If you think there is no chance that you'll ever throw away Christian life, the Apostle Paul is saying, listen carefully. The Apostle knows better. Paul is a firm believer in the sovereignty of God. He's the one who gave us the doctrine of predestination, assurance of salvation. Yet, he is also a firm believer in genuine human responsibility under the sovereignty of God. He believes in both what we might call perseverance of the saints and preservation of the saints at the same time. God preserves you, but you must persevere. The danger in Christian walk is real because ultimately Satan is real. The captivator, the deceiver, the liar from the very beginning is still prowling around like a lion to consume Christians away from Christ. Uh, There's a little irony here in Paul's use of language. I don't know if you picked it up. Paul talks about being taken as a captive, in other words, prisoner, slave, as a prisoner in Roman jail right now at this point as he is writing. Paul is saying there is more than meets the eye. What's worse than being put in jail is being led by the devil and losing Christ. You can experience freedom, fullness, even in prison with abounding in thanksgiving if Christ is in you, if you are with Christ, if you live in him. On the other hand, you could seemingly enjoy all the success and respect of the world according to human tradition and elemental spirits of the world, yet in fact, be a slave of Satan. In fact, you can be a prisoner. Elemental spirits of the world could mean mystical or spiritualities of the world or a materialistic, decaying, worldly teaching. Uh, Whatever it may be, the emphasis seems to be any human ideas or teaching that is not according to Christ. In other words, that is uh, any human teaching or tradition that does not fully recognize the kind of thing Paul said about Christ in chapter 1, verse uh, 15 to 23, for example. Paul elaborates more about this element of human teaching not according to Christ in verses 16 to 23. We don't have time to look at all these in these verses in detail, but even a quick glimpse at it brings to our mind the kind of teaching that are in view. The first century Jewish teachers claiming to enrich spiritual experience for Christians, for a fuller understanding, experience, and consecration. The medieval Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy appealing to venerable tradition and human office bearers. The Pentecostal Christianity offering second blessings and fuller assurance and deeper experience. 
Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism pointing to the thousand years of their tradition, the community wisdom, boasting their worldly renowned philosophies and success. Islam claiming to possess an original manuscript of the Bible that is not corrupted, an updated revelation from God's own prophet. It is easy to lose the word of God and fill it with rituals and spectacular experiences. It is easy to lose the power of God and look for power elsewhere in miraculous healings. It is easy to be wowed by human tradition and wisdom. It is easy to lose assurance in the word of God and look for assurance in future predicting prophecies or so-called prophecies. It is easy to lose God's victory over Satan in the word of the gospel and look for victory elsewhere, exorcism. Often, these teachings come deceitfully in persuasive words with an appearance of wisdom and even a look of humility. That's what that word asceticism literally is, if you translate it uh, literally. That they, 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 they emphasize being humble. And that is expressed in things like religious piety, continuing to go on fasting and things like that. But in fact, what's happening is slavery back into the hands of Satan, the deceiver, and led away from Christ on whom and only through whom you can be reconciled to God. Paul says, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Verse 19. Paul is saying, any human philosophies or religions that fails to grasp the grasp the significance of who Jesus is, and in particular, what is death and resurrection accomplished. No matter how venerable their human origin is, no matter how persuasive their speech with which they are presented, in fact, they are empty deceit. Don't be fooled. Don't be led away. In fact, how could they be right when Christ is in whom and through whom and for whom everything is created and now reconciled. You take Christ out of the picture, you lose everything. Now what then is the remedy against these dangers? How do we make sure we're not taken captive by Satan? Paul's remedy against the danger, is, as Sam helpfully pointed out earlier, is seeing Christ clearly yet again. Understanding who Christ is more deeply, established in the faith. So he turns our attention to Christ once again in chapter 2, verse 9. For, this is the reason why you must not be taken captive by empty deceit. It's Christ. Then look at the repetition of in him or with him or Christ in verses 9 to 15. Just have a quick look. There's a, in him, in verse 9, in him, verse 10, in him, verse 11, with him, verse 12, with him, verse 13, in him, verse 15. You get the point, isn't it? He's trying to make sure you're seeing him. The horror of being deceived and being taken captive away from Christ lies in just how wonderful Christ is and how important is what God has done for you in him. You need to see that. 
Therefore, the remedy also is seeing how supreme Christ is and what amazing thing God has done for us in him. Look at verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Uh, Paul's picking up what he had said back in chapter 1, verse 19. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you are taken captive and led away from Christ, you and I are being led away from the fullness of God. Recognize just how tragic that is. You're, You're turning away from fullness of God. And here is the enormous claim of the Christian gospel, the God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who made himself known to Moses and led them out of Exodus, in Exodus. The God who revealed himself to David and dwelt in the temple in Mount Zion, dwelt fully and bodily in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul's second point is no grander. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him. It wouldn't be an over-translation to translate this verse as, you have been fully or completely filled in him. That is the reality if you have received Jesus as Christ and Lord. You move away from Christ, you lose everything. Further, what has happened to you, Colossians, and what has happened to you, church at nine, in Christ? Paul elaborates in verses 11 to 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Uh, Paul uses circumcision as a metaphor for violent death, killing of sinful nature, the body of flesh. When I said that, Paul uses circumcision as a, a metaphor for death. Uh, I think a lot of the mums think, what's a big deal? You know, it's just a piece of skin. Women give birth. That, that really is like good metaphor for death. Well, we don't need to put those into dichotomy or tension because the Bible uses both of them as a metaphor for death of old self and a resurrection of a new life. Likewise, he uses another imagery here, a baptism, being immersed into the violent waves Jesus himself speaks of his death in the language of baptism back in Mark chapter 10, verse 39. Apostle Paul also does that in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 4. The wonder Paul wants us to see is that Christ's death was so fully and effective for us that each of us have to say what has happened to Christ has also happened to us. In that awful physical, bloody reality of Christ's death on the cross. His terrible circumcision, you might say, has happened to me in reality also, though not literally physical and bloody. We have died. Our sinful old self has been put to death in Christ, in the baptism of Christ, in his descent, immersion into the dead, And not only that, the same power of God which was at work in Jesus' resurrection made us alive with him. Verse 13, united to Jesus by faith, we share in his resurrection life. Uh, This is not simply speaking about future, although it includes that. 
the resurrection power of Almighty God who raised Jesus from the dead is already at work in the lives of believers, strengthening us, establishing us, giving us a cause to be abounding in thankful hearts. We were once uncircumcised, as Paul says here, uncircumcision of your flesh. Colossians were literally uncircumcised, being Gentiles like most of us today. We were not the original heirs of God's promise. The covenant belonged to Israel. Yet through Christ, God made us alive. What is the result? This is the result. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is what God has done in Christ for you. If you have forgotten it, if things have been a little bit hazy, if you are discouraged, if you are anxious about your Christian life, listen very carefully. This is what God has done in Christ for you. Do not skip the word all. God has forgiven all your trespasses. And some of us are very sensitive about our failures, our past guilt troubles our conscience even after many years. But in Christ, the truth of the gospel is this. All forgiven. Paul uses a graphic imagery here once again with the language of record of debt. Uh, consider a document, document that is written, and it contains everything that you have done wrong against God in your life. Every swear words that you have uttered in your life. Every anger, every lustful thought, every selfishness. It's a disturbing document, isn't it? It's a kind of document that you wouldn't post up in your Instagram or Facebook kind of document that you wish you'd never have to see again, secretly hidden to be destroyed. Well, God in Christ has done that for you. All forgiven. He wiped it clean. Cancelled and set it aside and declare you, as Paul said of Colossians back in chapter 1 verse 1 uh, chapter 1 verse 1 holy set apart now before God blameless above reproach because of what Christ has done for you uh, do you see now why if you belong to Christ you can abound in thankfulness do you see now why it would be an absolute horror to shift away from Christ. That is why if you belong to Christ, Paul says, let no one pass judgment to you. Let no one disqualify you. Uh, It's not saying don't consider other people whatsoever. Christian life always must be other person-centered, but we all know that temptation to be wanting to be accepted by others. Other people's judgment matters so much more than it ought. When it comes to your Christian life, fullness of blessing, assurance of salvation, everything you need to live a godly life with abounding thankful heart, don't let anyone tell you. 
don't let anyone influence or man- manipulate you that you need more than Christ. There is no reason to feel superior, spiritually superior, or inferior for that matter. We don't let anyone judge us or put us down, not because of how great we are in ourselves, but because of what Christ has done for us. A bit like what uh, uh, that author of great hymn, Amazing Great, John Newton said in his deathbed, this is one thing I knew, I learned in my life. I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great saviour. And finally, Paul reminds the Colossians that there is no power over Christ in all creation. Verse 10 again, Christ is head of all, rule and authority. Why? Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There is no power, visible or invisible, physical or spiritual, that is over Christ. There is nothing to fear, ultimately, if you are in Christ. No spiritual powers can harm you. Christ is in all, above all, and over all. And this gives me a goosebumps every time I read it. That Christ is your head. My head and your head. We belong to him. We are rooted in him. We are connected to him. We are built upon him. If that is you, don't look elsewhere. So brothers and sisters, in our anxieties and failures of Christian life, let us look to Christ. Consider again who he is, how great he is, what wonderful things he has done for us, and what power is at work in us right now through him. Let's make sure that no one takes us captive, but let us keep walking in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith with abounding thanksgiving. Amen.